You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Wise, and I'm an orthopedic surgery resident in Detroit, Michigan. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim Tucker. I'm an orthoplasty surgeon from Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona. And I'm Lizzie Lieberman. I'm an orthoplasty surgeon in Portland, Oregon. In this episode, we'll have an episode of Shortcuts, where we go over three articles that we hand-selected from recent month's publications. So the article that I chose is titled, Effect of Fracture Type Treatment in Surgeon Training on Reoperation After Vancouver B Paraprosthetic Femur Fractures. It's a multi-center retrospective cohort study from 11 institutions with the total number of arthroplasties increasing each year. The total number of paraprosthetic femur fractures are increasing as well. Right now, the cumulative risk reaches about 7% at 20 years. These are challenging injuries with high stakes and multiple factors that can influence management, including the Vancouver classification of the fracture. Orthopedic surgeons from arthroplasty and or traumatology subspecialties are often tasked with managing these patients, which often require transfer for higher levels of care more than two-thirds percent of the time, and this can delay treatment. So for the methods in this paper, they retrospectively identified patients greater than 18 years of age with parapsychic femur fractures and six months of follow-up. Patient demographics, surgical characteristics, and outcome measures were collected by each institution. The treatment was classified as either non-surgical, revision orthoplasty, plus or minus ORIF, or solely ORIF, so patients classified as ORIF had no revision components used. The primary outcome was need for reoperation at three and six months postoperatively. And the secondary outcomes were non-union, malunion, infection, instability, and ambulatory status. The surgeon at each institution classified these injuries based on the Vancouver classification using preoperative radiographs. These surgeons were also classified so they're classified as an arthroplasty surgeon if they had an arthroplasty fellowship or did 200 or more total joint arthroplasties a year, trauma if they did a traumatology fellowship, or other. Orthopedic surgeons who did a trauma and an arthroplasty fellowship were categorized as arthroplasty and also arthroplasty again if they had a trauma fellowship but did over 200 total joints cases a year. So for the results, there were 601 parapsetic femur fractures. 396 of these had at least six months of follow-up. 23 of these were Vancouver A fractures. 343, the vast majority at about 87% were Vancouver B fractures. And 30 of these were Vancouver C fractures. All of the Vancouver B fractures were treated operatively, which you can see here in table one. There were 72 B-type fractures that were treated with RF alone. That's about 20% while about 80% of these were treated with revision total hip arthroplasty with or without ORIF as well. Of these B fractures, about 75% were treated by arthroplasty surgeons, about 12% were treated by trauma surgeons, and 11% were treated by other type of orthopedic surgeon. Patients with Vancouver B3 fractures were more likely to undergo reoperation and experience postoperative instability. Compared to B1 fractures, patients with B3 fractures had significant independent risk factor for reoperation at an odds ratio at 5.7. ORF versus revision arthroplasty did not significantly have a higher reoperation rate. However, revision had a higher risk of instability and ORF had a higher risk of non-union. 
Treatment by a trauma surgeon was an independent risk factor for reoperation when considering all of the paraprosthetic V fractures, but not specifically B2. Finally, patient age was also an independent risk factor for reoperation, as well as peripheral vascular disease in patients who had Vancouver B2 fractures. A couple takeaways I had about this. Number one is that, as we know, these Vancouver B3 fractures are very challenging to deal with. And this is in anyone's hands, regardless of their experience in fellowship or training. Treatment can clearly vary depending on not only the training of the surgeon, but also the institution where, where they present. When looking at the complication rates of these, most notably the non-union postoperatively and instability stakes are high for treating these patients and treating them well. The trauma surgeons had higher reoperation rate, but I think this may be due a little bit to selection bias. I mean, I think this paper really highlights the need for more research. There's a lot of factors involved. There's a relatively low number of publications uh, regarding this topic. And as I mentioned before, it's becoming increasingly more prevalent. So my question to both of you would be, how are these patients treated at your institution and what has your experience been? So I can start a quick question before I answer that though. And I'm sorry, I didn't if you already said this, Kevin, but did they note why they had the reoperations in this paper in the methods? I'm sorry if I missed that, but was it usually for instability, did you say? They did. But patients who had uh, revision arthroplasty, they had a higher risk of having a reoperation for instability. And the instability. patients who had okay. ORIF had the reoperation for non-union, which would make sense. You know, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this since we've been talking about a lot of these papers with revision hips lately in that we have a soft tissue envelope that we are changing with a reoperation and causing a lot of these potential problems with instability. So I, I think that soft tissue management and that last podcast that we did where we talked about or was that two ago where we talked about increasing neck length or increasing um, stability, I think is going to be really important in to recognize in these patients that we should be adding something so that this instability is addressed. Where we are, a lot of these are taken care of by the trauma surgeons. They like doing them. It's a trauma one center though. So they're really used to taking care of these. They do call in an arthroplasty surgeon if they're not comfortable with the STEM choices available. So, um, but I would say it's more of a tag team oftentimes than the arthroplasty surgeon doing the primary surgery. Yeah, my experience is a little different. So I don't have a trauma surgeon or a trauma service at my hospital. We're really lucky and have like a fracture block that's managed by sometimes an arthroplasty surgeon, sometimes a generalist, but we don't have specific trauma trained folks. So these end up coming to our arthroplasty surgeons most often, and we do a fair amount of them. I think you use the tools that are in your toolbox. And so as an arthroplasty surgeon, I think we're probably doing a lot more revisions. I trained in St. Louis at Washington University and they have a really great trauma program, but also a large number of arthroplasty attendings and actually had a arthroplasty call set up, which was great because then these also often went to the arthroplasty teams who were prepared to kind of manage them. I think a lot of people doing more elective arthroplasty practices probably don't see them as much. So it's highly variable in who's managing them. And I think we talk about this a lot with the distal femur fractures as well, periprosthetics or native knees, whether or not those do better with a DFR or ORIF. So I think it's really interesting to look at it from a hip perspective. But you know, I agree with 
with Kim that these aren't just revision arthroplasty and it's not just an ORIF. We have to get more research like this to acknowledge some of the different complications that we may see so we can kind of try and address them or prevent them. Yeah. And like you said, Kevin, this is going to become more prevalent. I mean, we're doing more and more hips and these folks are going to be older when they get them and they're going to fall and break. So I think it's really important that we have this research and know what the best options are and who should be taking care of these. I have concerns in the community. I mean, I worked in a community hospital for many years and these things come in and we don't even have a lot of the instruments available. And so that's another consideration in caring for these, that these folks may sit around for a day or two before we can get the instruments there that we need because they're driving them down from Phoenix or something like that. So something to consider with this is the chronicity of it too. How's it treated at your institution, Kevin? It depends. It will go to the trauma surgeon first, typically, because these will come in kind of on call overnight, it seems inevitably, or it'll be a transfer. They deal with a lot of them. If they want some help, they obviously let one of our arthroplasty colleagues know. So it's very dependent on, I think this is a really good paper, but a B2 isn't a B2 isn't a B2. Even those, there's a lot of difference within those. And I think that's where we need to have larger numbers and more research to look at very specific fracture patterns specific to the implant that's already there. Totally. And then I think it's going to be really interesting looking forward that I think a lot of the, I guess what I've just seen more recently is I think a lot of the trauma implants are improving for these fractures and you're going to be able to fix more of these than you could prior. So I think seeing how that the implants evolve to deal with this problem will also be interesting to see. Yeah. So now we can go to the second article. I chose an article by Jesse Seiler und Osbong. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So the impact of frailty on outcomes following primary total hip arthroplasty in patients of different sex and race is frailty equitably detrimental. So this is a retrospective cohort study using the NISQIP database to identify frail patients undergoing primary total hip arthroplasty, and they matched these patients for each frail cohort, and they looked at 30-day complications and resource utilizations and compared them between the cohorts. In this situation, the frailty scale was calculated for each patient as is standardly performed, and frailty was defined as being on the index of greater than or equal to two. The findings of this study, I'm not going to go through all the methods, but it was a database study, but the discussion basically mentioned that the findings of this study indicated that frail patients of different races generally experience postoperative complications and resource utilization equally, though there were some specific exceptions to this. So Frail women were found to have increased rates of postoperative complications, prolonged hospitalizations, and non-home hospital discharges when compared to their male counterparts. Frail men, however, were more likely to have death, actually, within 30 days and experience cardiac arrest. So I thought that was an interesting thing. And then one more thing I want to mention. So there was no difference in the occurrence of at least one complication among frail patients of differing race. However, frail black patients had increased odds of postoperative transfusion, DVT, as well as greater than two-day hospitalization and non-home discharge. So overall, I think this study 
showed that these patients do need to be identified, I think, more than anything. And one thing I've been thinking about in this, and I'm wondering how this happens with your institutions, is that we are just starting to collect information on different social determinants of health. And I wonder if you all have those in place at your institution, because I think this is a place where if we look at these frailty scales combined with the concurrent issues that these folks are having, it may lead us to address these things ahead of time and be able to recognize and address them and help these folks a little bit more if we can. Right now, I don't look into these social determinants of health like you're mentioning, but definitely I think I should after looking at this. If we can add up different comorbidities and talk to patients about their risks preoperatively, but we're not considering some of these other things like race or frailty index for sure, I think there's different things that we do to risk stratify for our primary patients and especially for these fracture patients, managing them both before and after surgery. I'm inspired just based on this article to start considering it and collecting for future research as well. Yeah, I've never collected the frailty index score on folks before. And I think it seems like it would be not really hard to put in. I'm going to have to look through our medical record to see if it's even something that's available already that I'm just not looking at under health maintenance. It seems like there's a lot of options under there that uh, just aren't standardly used. And I think this would be a good one. I also noted at the end of this, there was an association between women and surgical site infection that wasn't previously reported. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. And I think we've all seen those really thin ladies that have that paper thin skin. And it's something to consider with them is maybe having them immobilized for a period of time or at least paying extra attention to follow up with them regarding their incision. Yeah. When I looked at this, I almost wondered if there could be something we could create that is more specifically orthopedic tailored. I think the frailty index here and what we may think of as frailty is a little bit different. Like I wasn't as familiar with this and like you were saying, so I dove into it a little bit deeper and The five they have, it's basically diabetes. You have to have hypertension that requires medication, depends on your functional status, respiratory pathology, and heart failure. But that's specifically within 30 days of the surgery. And it's really kind of a cardiovascular leaning frailty index in my mind, where we would have something like osteoporosis in there. Do we have something that involves like a overall muscle mass index. And I could see something like that, plus the social determinants really giving us a a better idea of identifying patients who maybe we could manage a little bit differently to improve their outcome. Because like this one, for this paper, you were frail if you had two. And so if you have poorly controlled diabetes, if you have diabetic nephropathy, and that's it, you're frail. So I think that it's just kind of interesting. I wonder if there could be something that would be even more useful specifically to us as arthroplasty surgeons that we could use to identify um, patients. Yeah, it's almost like semantics here, like using the word in a different way. Like what I think of in my head as a frail person is not necessarily cardiovascularly inclined. When I read that description of these, I was kind of taken aback a little bit too. I thought it was going to be more about bone quality, ambulation status, or things like that. The things that we kind of look at from the door and be like, oh gosh, this person's going to have some trouble post-op. An albumin maybe in there or something. Yeah. Yeah. Nutrition status. Yeah. That's a good idea. Kevin, write the paper. 
But I really, I mean, I think the authors are onto something here, combining things like gender, race, and all of that. And, you know, we've identified before that some of these things are associated with health literacy, potential support systems. You know, it's interesting if you look at different cultures, some people in some cultures, it's more set up where family members live together for a very long time. And some cultures are set up where people are living in different cities, countries, or just not as connected. And that's really important in terms of who is helping this patient postoperatively, whether or not they end up at a nursing facility. And I think all of those things really matter. And as we can start to kind of identify, and we're making generalizations, but that's okay. That's what we need to do in order to help risk stratify and predict who's at risk of which complications. So we're starting to be able to identify some of those things, which I think is really interesting uh, trajectory. Awesome. With that, we can probably move on here to our last article. Okay. I'm going to talk about a paper that's actually a paper I've been a part of. So the title is Factors That Influence Orthopedic Women Resident Selection of Adult Reconstruction. So just a brief background, we know that adult reconstruction and actually spine are the two orthopedic subspecialties with the lowest rates of women. It's at around 3 to 4% in each of these. We think that stereotypes may play a role in helping to keep these numbers low. So the purpose of this study was to look and see if there's any factors, social factors in particular, that are deterring women, orthopedic surgery residents, from going into adult reconstruction. So we did an electronic survey, sent it to both men and women orthopedic surgery residents. We found really high rates of men and women, similar rates of both genders responding that they are interested in orthopedic surgery. Around 90% of residents said that they enjoy arthroplasty procedures. And actually the only difference in positive or negative influencing factors was that men more often said that they disliked the fact that there are inpatient procedures or you have patients spending the night in adult reconstruction. That was the only deterrent in both genders that was any different. Overall, we found no differences in residents reporting their sense of belonging in the field of adult reconstruction. We found no difference between men and women reporting their own self-confidence and their abilities to succeed in the field of adult reconstruction. Where we did find differences, however, is how residents perceive what others think. So the perception here. So for example, women said that they think other residents or faculty view their male colleagues as being either more interested or more skilled in adult reconstruction. So there's a couple of social science ideas that this kind of leads us to discuss. The first one is the idea of pluralistic ignorance. So this is when an individual believes something but thinks that everybody else thinks the opposite. So an example, if you look this up, is like the emperor's new clothes where everybody thinks that everybody else can see the clothing on the emperor, but they can't actually see it. So they just go along pretending that they can all see it. When we get into this idea, we risk conforming to what is actually an incorrect societal norm. So if women and men residents report that they have high self-confidence in their own skills, but they perceive that others think women in general are thought of as having low skill or confidence, then they may actually doubt themselves or just elect not to go into that field. The next idea is the idea of stereotype threat, which is when people feel at risk that they may confirm a negative stereotype. So if women think that others view women as less skilled or confident, they may avoid going into adult reconstruction because they don't want to confirm that stereotype. So finally, we talk about the bystander effect. This is the idea that multiple observers may identify a problem, 
but they don't take action because they assume that somebody else will. I kind of think about this when somebody asks if there's a doctor on the plane and nobody stands up, assuming that there's probably another physician on the plane. So in our study, we found that men more than women reported that their programs are likely to encourage women to go into adult reconstruction. So if we look at the bystander effect, we may think that other people are taking action to promote gender diversity. However, we're not really seeing these numbers going up. We also sometimes talk about the minority tax, which is where the minority, or in this case, women are often tasked at promoting diversity. And so it may look like there's a lot of women really supporting other women, but we need everybody to support everybody, different genders and more diverse candidates going into these fields. Kind of piggybacking on the paper that Kim just talked about, it's actually important for us to have a diverse workforce so we can identify some of these cultural gender and other things that may impact patients differently. So at the end of the day, it's great that residents are interested in adult reconstruction, but somewhere we're missing the link in people expressing interest and actually going into that field, particularly with women. So it's really important that we identify these stereotypes so we can combat them and provoke more diversity in adult reconstruction. Lizzie, I love that you wrote this paper. So thank you for doing it for one thing. I think it's really interesting research and especially now that we have more women who are residents that are going to be coming up the ranks here. I think this is really important to know and know how we can make our field in particular more welcoming. I think one thing I think about with this in our field is lack of mentorships or mentors available. And I mean, I I guess what I try to always think of is we know that these issues exist. And I think unconscious gender bias in our culture is normal. But I think that it's really hard as humans to get out of that and to recognize when we're doing that and actively choose to think in a different or opposite way. So I liked what you were just talking about with the incorrect societal norm, but I also think that it's hard when we've been culturally trained to think in a certain way. So I think one thing that I see moving forward is that if we can make ourselves available as female arthroplasty surgeons to mentor folks or at least even be visible, I think that helps hopefully some women choose our field wanted to mention that to start. I mean, I agree. I think this is kind of a call to action for everybody. I'm kind of curious, Kevin, your thoughts about a paper like this. I think looking at the cover or skimming through different articles in Journal of Arthroplasty, this is something that catches my attention. But I mean, is this even on your radar? Is this something that you're talking about? Are you annoyed reading a paper like this? What do you think? No, yeah, it's definitely something on my radar. Not annoyed at all because I think that whenever you feel passionate about something or you enjoy arthroplasty and you enjoy the the greater community, you want to be proud of the whole body it represents. And when there is an, an issue like this, it's something you say, hey, we were trying to work on this and improve it. When I read this, the first thing I thought, which I thought would be interesting to see, is that unfortunately moving like a big boat like this takes like a little correction over time, I feel like. And my first thought was, I would like to know what the percentage of female applicants to the arthroplasty match was this year, because I don't have an actual number, but it felt to me higher than the 3% that I saw in this paper, which is not, it's definitely not where it should be, but it's encouraging. And hopefully that means that some of the things that we're doing are moving 
us slowly into the right direction. I think mentorship is a big part of that. So that was my first thought is I would like to know to see something that's encouraging to show that it is improving. You know, in the mentorship realm as well, I think we as women in our field always feel, I don't want to say obligated because I enjoy doing it, but we feel like we should be the mentors, but we need the guys to be mentors as well. We need our colleagues that are high up in their research world and things like that as well to mentor young women and not feel like the same gender biases exist there where we might not have a full-time career. We might not go into academics because it's a different type of career path than they've taken. So I don't know. I guess I would just like to say that we need the guys to help out with this as well. And what I found in my research on gender within our field too is that a lot of the folks who will join in with us on some of these initiatives have daughters and like connecting with them by they will come up to me and be like oh my gosh my daughter is really interested in this and she saw this video of you guys and it's just really interesting that they have to almost have a single degree away from it in order to be interested in it and i really wish that there was just more interest at a baseline and i think you kind of hit on something too earlier where you said that look at what we just talked about and how there are these other social determinants that can make us better, not only for our immediate community, but also for our patients. Like inherent diversity amongst us will make us better at treating patients and and providing better care. And isn't that one of the core tenets that what, what we believe in is always trying to get as better and as close to kind of perfect as we can be. So I completely agree with all of that. Yeah, but we don't look at it if we don't identify it as a potential risk or problem. So, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate, but, you know, a lot of the gender research is done by minorities, so by women in this field, or a lot of the research looking at race and disparities there and health equity is done by people who are underrepresented minorities. We're not publishing as much research. It becomes something that we just all need to increase our awareness about. So I'm glad that we got this paper published because I think it's something to just continue the conversation. It's definitely not the first. There's many, many papers out there. But look at the authors who are writing these papers really focused on this thing. And, you know, just consider putting gender in when we're analyzing things, thinking about things and, you know, for our industry friends and anybody putting together talks and things, just making sure we're aware that we're representing diversity. I also wanted to mention that in the same vein that you're talking about, Lizzie, like even the name of some of this research, they call it soft topics. Mm -hmm. And even that implies that it's not as important as the other topics to in my opinion so i just i feel like this could use a little bit more understanding colleagues in our field as being important and the last paper showed that also just with we need to be able to look at these different races and different genders and recognize the various issues that they have i totally agree yeah absolutely well we hope that all of you enjoyed today's episode if you have any topics that you'd like to hear from us or comments, feedback, please email us at jwaythecut at gmail.com. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit acus.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.